In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright, never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. Well, good morning. It is good to have you here. Those of you in the room, those of you joining us online, so glad that you're with us today. I want to, before I get going here, I want to give you an update on our Easter offering. I kind of teased this a little bit last week. Uh, if you're not... Uh, been with us in the last couple weeks or the last few years, you may not be aware. Every year on our Easter weekend and the week following that, we take all the monies that are given in our offerings and tithes that week, and then we commit to giving them 100% away over the course of the next year, opportunities to help out relieving crisis or opportunities to, to help out in different organizations. We've been doing this for 15, 16 years. So this year, the Easter offering came in at $116,412.33. So yeah, so thank you so much uh, for partnering partnering with this. Uh, I, I didn't say this in the other services. I was walking in here uh, today thinking about uh, Marge Backman, who used to be our treasurer back in the day. And back in the day, our annual budget was less than $100,000. And I thought, how cool is it now that on one week we give away more than what our annual budget used to be? Now, that was a long time ago. Not that I'm saying Marge is old, but I was there too, so I'm old. Hey, it is good to have you uh, with us today and partnering with us as we make an impact in this world. Let me paint for you a, a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical group of people, a, a community, a country, a, a land, and in this land, this group of people far away in a different time, they've experienced some hardships, a setback, some challenges in their life, in their community, in their country, in, in their own world. And as a result of that, they, they feel like, like things will never quite be the same anymore. In, in fact, they they speak longingly of the days before these events took place. And they try to settle into what is the new norm. And, and, and as, as they deal with all this, they realize that part of the, the things that they've gone through, the experiences they've had, the, the events that caused them in this, this time of things, everything's just turned upside down, is really because of government overreach. That, that a government would would maybe go beyond what is normal and, and maybe even legal or right or just and fair and, and that they would make some commands or do some mandates or, or bring them out some control that would cause that. And it, it left the people very angry and sometimes antagonistic towards the government. And on top of that, it wasn't just angry people. But it had far-reaching effects. I mean, it impacted them economically, individually, as families, as businesses. And the whole, the whole nation was impacted economically because of these decisions that were made. And not only that, but it took the entire education system and turned it completely upside down and, and social settings and social uh, issues were, were, were unraveled. And in the midst of all of this taking place, their land, their country was, was on this, this downward spiral of moral degradation and spiritual confusion. And so at the end of it, some of these people felt like their, their hopes, their dreams, their plans, their future, their very lives that had been like torn down and, and beat up and kicked in and spit out. And they found themselves discouraged and in despair and, and kind of just, just distraught. 
Hard to imagine a situation could ever be like that. Now, I kind of fibbed on the front end because this isn't fully hypothetical. In fact, what I just described to you is an exact representation and description of something that happened 2,600 years ago. And 2,600 years ago, some people of God found themselves in this situation and found themselves in a land called Babylon, a place where they didn't want to be. You say, those kind of circumstances, those kind of situations, change out some of the details, happen all throughout human history, even to our day. And why is that? Why are there these things that happen like this? And the simple answer is, because we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And we do. But the good news of God's word found in 1 John verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 4 says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world, that somehow we are able, because we're of God's people, we're able to rise above this, to transcend this, in essence, to live a life of resilience, even in the midst of a broken, sinful world. Thus the title of this series, The Resilient. We're going to be spending the next eight weeks talking about this. And as I was doing some study on the front end, I was doing some biblical study and otherwise uh, other sources as well. One of the things I found interesting is that there were multiple different definitions for resilient or resilience. And a couple that I will share today, another one next week and maybe some more throughout. But one of the definitions I came across for resilience is this. The capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties. When we have things in our life, whether it's individually or as a family or as a business or as a church or as a nation, to withstand those things, to endure in those things, to be resilient in the midst of them, or to recover quickly. And the truth is, and I think you would agree with, us, agree with me, most of us would rather do the recover quickly than to withstand. Like, let's get on this, this thing. Let's, let's not dwell in this. Let's, let's move on. Let's get it over with and let's recover quickly. And I'm thinking, in life, we desire that in all kinds of areas, in my own area. We're always looking for something to get this done with and get fixed so we can move on. Give me a shortcut. Let me take a pill. You know, give me a life hack. I'll, I'll, uh, an example that's happened a couple months ago, I mentioned that my youngest daughter and I ran the Austin Marathon together. And at the end of it, she said, Dad, I, I booked us a session, a, a cryotherapy session. I said, great. And I'd never done, I'd never done this before that you go into this cryo chamber and apparently because of the cold that it, you know, it reduces inflammation and swelling and it relieves some of the pain and the fatigue and it helps rebuild and reconstruct these muscles that have been torn apart. So I said, okay, great. She said, we can go in the cryo chamber together. She lives in kind of this millennial village there in Austin and right next to her apartment is this place we walk to it. It's called Restore. Now in my mind here in Whatcom County, I think Restore, I'm thinking they tore down an old building, they're selling old doors. This is Restore. And so we walk in and they have ivy drips and oxygen tanks and, and compression sleeves and light therapy and cryotherapy and the millennials are paying all this. So we walk in and uh, we walk past all this stuff going on, ivy drips and weird stuff. And so we get to the back to the cryo chamber and I say to the guy, I've never done this before. He says, not a problem. Go in the changing room, take off all your clothes and put all this on. Went back there, and uh, don't visualize it. So I went back there, and, uh, and he gave me this pile of stuff. So I started looking through, what am I putting on? Well, there was a black stocking cap, got that. There were some black mittens, got that, and some black booties. And then the only thing left was, the best way I can describe it was like, like a, a terry cloth mini skirt. 
for modesty's sake. It wasn't shorts. It wasn't skorts. Or it was a mini skirt, a terrycloth thing. It just kind of, and, and so I okay. So I pulled that. So I walk out of the dressing room, and I'm standing there with my black booties, my black mittens, my black cap, and my, 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 my mini skirt, my terrycloth mini skirt. And, you know, there's people, you know, ivy dripping and what have you. So my daughter comes out. And the guy at the chamber says, so what do you guys want? She said, the longest and the coldest. I said, we, we, we do? Yeah, okay. She said, now, Dad, here's what you need to do. When we get in there, don't watch the clock and dance really good. It helps. So she says to the guy, longest, coldest, and Taylor Swift. So we're walking over to the cryo chamber, and I said, so how long are we in there? And she said, three minutes and 15 seconds. I said, how cold is it? Minus 147. So, okay. She said, just dance. So, all right. So they open the door of this cryo chamber, and fog just starts pouring out of this place. And it reminded me of the science day we had when I was in the sixth grade at Truman Elementary School when they brought in a canister of liquid nitrogen, and they opened it, and the fog began to pour out. And they took a live rose and put it in there, and then it shattered. Like, that's what we're going into. So we get in this cryo chamber, and they shut the door, and she says, don't look at the clock. It's going to count down for 3.15 down. And then Taylor Swift starts blaring. She says, just dance, Dad. So there I am, minus 147 degrees in a terry cloth miniskirt, dancing to Taylor Swift. And I thought, if my church could just see me now. <laughs> when I came out of the chamber, they, they took my temperature, the, the surface temperature, my skin's temperature was 57 degrees. That it's somehow able to, to reduce this and bring about resilience in the muscles so quickly. And how great would it be if in the difficulties of life we could go into some kind of chamber with a miniskirt on and dance for three minutes and have all those things done away with. And yet the reality is sometimes it's withstanding the difficulties and hanging in there. You know, there's a whole branch of psychology on resilience. And it's, it's fascinating. Uh, all, all of this... Um, and the American Psychological Association, they define resilience this way. It's the process and the outcome of successfully adjusting to difficult and challenging life experiences. The process and the outcome of successfully adjusting to these difficulties and these challenges. And here's the great thing. Psychologists will tell you this. That when it comes to resilience in our life, it's something we can develop. We can grow in. It's not just, well, there's resilient people and there's non-resilient people. Everyone can grow in resilience, and that's fantastic. Now, I'm, I want to tell you, this is not a series on psychology, though I find it very fascinating, and there will be pieces of that make its way in. I want us to look at what does God's word say to us about being his people to live resilient in this fallen, broken world. So the title of the series is The Resilient, The People Who Are Resilient, and the subtitle is Wisdom from Babylon, and there could even be a sub-subtitle, Wisdom for Babylon, in these times when it's, it's difficult. So we're going to be looking at this, and the psalmist writes about some people that were in Babylon. In Psalm 137, it says this, by the rivers of Babylon, which was the Euphrates River, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Thought about the old days, how it used to be. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors, they demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us a song. You're the Zion clan. Sing us a song tonight. 
We're all in the mood for a melody. No, wait, that was Billy Joel. He said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And when we were in Jerusalem and they were doing a bar mitzvah, they've got drums and tambourines and horns and dancing. Like, sing us those songs. Let us hear that. And they said, we don't want to. Our harps are hung on the tree. We're in Babylon. Babylon is a place where we didn't choose to be. Babylon is a place we don't want to be. Babylon is a place of non-happiness. Have you ever been to Babylon? Some of you are there today. Babylon is that place of great disappointment. And it can come in all different sources. From relationships, betrayal, children who make decisions, aging parents, our own emotions with anxiety or depression, fear, and come from vocational dreams that fell apart, financial setbacks, medical and physical diagnoses, spiritual dry seasons. See, seasons of Babylon, and how is it that we can be resilient even in Babylon? So that's where we're going for the next eight weeks. But today, I want to just let you know that I'm kind of laying the groundwork, giving some backstory and some history of this whole thing of Babylon and what we're basing this on for two reasons. Uh, one is to just kind of, kind of help us understand, okay, this was the context. And with understanding that, the second reason is maybe for some perspective for us to see of what some of, other, of the other of our brothers and sisters, God's people, have gone through. And I will say this right up front. Today is one of those days where I'm going to give you a lot of backstory, a lot of history, a lot of the kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And some of you absolutely love it when we go deep into the history, and this is your day. And some of you say, I don't love it, but I find it interesting. This is your day. And some of you say, I tolerate this. This is your day. Some of you are checking out, and we'll wake you up when the history lesson's over. Because I don't want to just give you a history lesson, but there's going to be a fair amount of history that goes into this, and hopefully will land the plane for us personally at the end of it. So here's the deal. Babylon is an actual place, and it's an ancient city. And you go clear back, the very first king of Babylon, and this is partly why I put this in the sermon, because you just don't get to say this name in church a whole lot. The first king of Babylon was a man named Nimrod. It's not just a name you call your brother. He's an actually man out of history. So King Nimrod, and he was a great hunter, but he was a bit of a Nimrod as we would think of it. History would reflect that he married his mother, which is an odd one, but regardless. But he's the king of, of, of Babylon. And Babylon is uh, located today about 50 miles, it would have been 50 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq, right there on the Euphrates River. And if you remember the, to the story of the Tower of, of, of Babel, that's where that happens. And most uh, scholars and historians would agree that Babylon was like the first really great city. It was the first city on the planet in human history to ever reach a population of 200,000, which was unheard of back in, you know, those thousands of years ago. And so it, it starts. Now, one other thing is, is unfortunately, the ruins of Babylon... Um, could have, should have, been excavated so we would learn more about their culture and such. Unfortunately, Saddam Hussein, you may remember that name, built his palaces on top of the ruins of Babylon. And you think, oh, bad Hussein. And unfortunately, in 2003, 
the United States built a military base on top of the ruins of Babylon. Unfortunate, but I digress. So in around the year 600 BC, the king of, of Babylon at this point is a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, under his leadership, built in Babylon one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, there was the pyramids and such, but one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. And he builds them here on the, on the rivers of the banks of the Euphrates. And under his leadership, Babylon becomes this, the super world power. Up to this point, it's been Assyria, but they've been defeated. Now Babylon, with the Medes and the Persians, they come over, and they become the super world power. One more little piece is that throughout the Bible, Babylon literally as a city, and Babylon spoken of metaphorically, is never said in a positive light. It's always very negative, and we'll see this uh, throughout. Now put a pin in that, hold there. That's kind of some of the history of Babylon. During this same time, there's been a, a, a steady downward slide of Israel, the people of God. In 1000 BC, during David's reign, it was the golden years, it was the glory years of Israel. It would never ever reach that level, that pinnacle again. Solomon, so-so, eh, but after Solomon, the kingdom divided to the north. Uh, there was Jeroboam would be the king of the ten tribes to the north, and Rehoboam would be the king to the two tribes to the south, which was called Judah, Israel, and Judah, and divided kingdom. And the problem is that over these last 400 years from David until our story picks up, there's just been bad king after bad king after bad king, especially in the north. They never had good kings. And when I say Bad kings, I'm not just talking about they weren't good leaders. The repeated refrain you see throughout is, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, over and over again. And when they did this, the, the, the country would follow suit, and so they would be taken off track. So much so that the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten tribes, were wiped out by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. The southern kingdom actually had some good godly kings. I think nine of their 20 were good kings. And so they actually lasted longer. But there was still these times when the, when the, the nation would, would go off and, and break their covenant with God and, and serve the foreign gods and, and go against all things that were godly. And it's in this season that God would send prophets now, you remember, a prophet stands between God and man and speaks on God's behalf to humans, whereas a priest speaks on humans' behalf to God. It's the prophets that would come and they would say, here is the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And in this season that all this is going on, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, hanging gardens of Babylon, world power, Jerusalem, Judea, or Judah, downward spiral, bad, bad, bad uh, kings, Jeremiah is one of the prophets that's sent. Jeremiah is referred to as the weeping prophet. He wrote a book called Lamentations, very sad. He's a weeping prophet, partly because he weeps over the condition of his people, of God's people, of the country. Partly he weeps because of the difficulty of the calling that is on his life. He never chose to be a prophet. Being a prophet was not a fun job. You had to be kind of the bearer of bad news. And he wept because of the calamity that came upon his life because he was faithful to the calling. And the prophet's goal was always sent by God, not to punish, but to, to say, listen, 
get back on track. You've strayed off. Get back into the covenant. Get it back into a right relationship. It's because of God's love. He wants to restore the covenant. He wants to restore the relationship. And if you don't get back on track, he's going to use some things to help motivate you to get back on track, and there will be some punishment. But it doesn't have to be that way. It was always motivated out of God's love. So Jeremiah is the prophet, and this is what we read about from Jeremiah, uh, verse, chapter 25, verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Notice he doesn't say, you have not listened to me. He said, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken, and you have not listened. It's not my message. It's not my words you're, you're ignoring. It's not my ideas. In fact, not only did they not listen, not only did they ignore it, there were times they would call Jeremiah a liar. There was times that they would take the scroll, the book that was written, and tear it up and burn it. There were times that they would arrest him and throw him in prison, put him in stocks, and eventually put him in a cistern. And for 23 years, you talk about the patience of our God. For 23 years, he's saying, hey, guys, hey, come on back. It doesn't have to be, you know, you know how as a parent you say, I'm going to count to three? I mean, God's counted 23 years. He's got a lot longer fuse than I've got. I mean, if, if I said, Cornwall, in the year Y2K, when George W. Bush was our president, for 23 years, I've been, and I would, I would have been gone a long time ago. For 23 years, he's been warning them. Finally, God says, okay, I've tried. Therefore, verse, verse 8, therefore the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, the whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, if you know your history, you might be saying, okay, so they're going to become like a vassal state, which isn't ideal. Taxes go up. They have to pay tribute, but they get the military protection, and then they won't be attacked by that. That is not the case. This is not about inviting them into a vassal state kind of a, a situation. This is going to be one of the most cruel, horrible, inhumane, hostile takeovers of a nation. The, the, pagan, um, the pagan kings were just so ruthless and no value to human life. In fact, the very last king of Judah, the very last king, look at how they treated him. This is in 2 Kings 25. They killed the sons of Zedekiah. This is the king of Judah. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Here's the king. And now they say, we want you to sit and watch what we're going to do. This is the most horrific thing that a parent could ever have to go through, to watch them probably torture and kill his sons, a sight that he would never be able to unsee. And then to make sure it's the last sight that he would ever see, they put his own eyes out so that the last thing he ever had visually was watching them kill his sons. And now this king is put in these shackles that would destroy his wrists and his ankles, and he's taken to Babylon. A, a few kings earlier, there was a, a king named Manasseh, and look what it says to him. They took Manasseh prisoner and put a hook in his nose. Now, now let's stop there. Now, I know the kids like the, the, what is it, the septum piercing, and, and that's, that's, that's fine. As a, as a fashion statement, I, I don't get it, but I'm old, so that's okay. 
This is not a septum piercing. This is not a fashion statement. They put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. This was like a leash, not shackled around his neck, but hooked through his nose, and that's how they would lead him to Babylon with these shackles. And when it says they took him to Babylon, they didn't transport him to Babylon. He walked to Babylon 700 miles, roughly from here to Redding, California. They would have to walk. This is the horrendous type of treatment. And between 605 B.C. and 586, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon attacks Jerusalem three different times. Let's look at one of these. It says in uh, 2 Kings 24, he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and the fighting men, all the craftsmen and the artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the leading men of, of the land. You see what he's done. He has stripped the entire country of all their leadership. All the military leadership, taken. All the political leadership, taken. All the artisans, the craftsmen, the, the skilled laborers, taken. All the royalty, taken. What does he leave? The lower class, the poor, the ones who have no leadership skills. He says, we don't want them. They can stay there. And then just to make sure that the whole country is demoralized even more, we read this in 2 Kings 25. He set fire to the temple of the Lord. This is after he's pillaged all of the articles that have been used wholly unto the Lord. The temple was their identity. It was the centerpiece of them being God's people. This was the, the focal point of them spiritually and religiously. He not only takes out all of the articles and plunders them, now he burns the temple to the ground. This was the, supposed to be the very dwelling place of God. So he destroys that that represents them spiritually and relationally. Not only that, but the royal palace. This would be their political piece. And all the houses, this is their, their, their social and familial piece. And every important building he burned down, this is the cultural piece. And the whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke the walls around, broke down the walls. This is the security. This is the military piece. On every front, he just destroys them. He's taken the greatest people out of the land, and then he destroys their identity with their temple. He destroys them politically. He destroys their homes and their neighborhoods. He destroys their culture, and then he breaks down the walls to leave them completely vulnerable. It is the end of the world as they know it. You know, when I was a kid playing t-ball, there was a little ritual that we used to do after every game. After the game, win or lose, we would do this ritual. Two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? And then we'd yell out the team's name. We didn't really appreciate him, but it was a ritual that we did. Well, one day, one of the little guys that I played t-ball with, he was joking around. He says, yeah, two, four, six, eight, who do we annihilate? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, who do we annihilate? <laughs> and I went home and said, Mom, what does it mean to annihilate? I had no clue. I just thought, well, if he's laughing, I better laugh. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he says, hey, two, four, six, eight, I am going to annihilate everything you know, everything you love, your identity, all of it, your entire world. And then he goes one step even further. In Daniel chapter 1, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men. Now he says, I don't want to just take your leading men. I don't want to just take your military men. Those were 20 and older. So now he's talking about high school guys. 
guys who are probably 15 to 19 years old, and specific ones, not just, just you know, give us the sophomore class, specific guys, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were, enter, they were to enter into the king's service. So he's taking these up-and-coming young, this, the future leaders of Israel, and they're going to be indoctrinated, shall we say, brainwashed for three years, and then they're supposed to joyfully serve the king that has destroyed everything they've ever known or loved. And there's a specific few that are chosen. In verse 6, it says... Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them more as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Radio Shack. Yeah. I'll just see if you're still awake. And we're going to cover them next week. So those guys will be with us next week. But what's interesting, as we will see, these guys, these four at least, are young men of incredible courage and conviction and godly, godly lives. And one of the saddest pieces of all this, but it's good for us to recognize, is that in all of this, the innocent experience collateral damage. These guys were true to God. The nation wasn't, and yet they're still taking it. And some of you know that sometimes we end up in Babylon not because of our decisions, not because of our choices, but because of someone else's sin, someone else's decisions. We're in the wake of, of, of their poor choices in life. Some of you know exactly what that's about. And how do we live a resilient life in those circumstances? Now, when all this is going on, Jeremiah is one of the prophets that sent, and Jeremiah is not taken to, into exile into Babylon. He's not a young man, so he's not taken there. He's not a military leader, so he's not taken there. He's not a political royal leader, so he's not taken there. He's not an artisan or a craftsman, so he's not taken there. In fact, he's a prophet that his own people really kind of abused. He's probably older at this point, and probably his body's pretty beat up from some of the abuse he's taken. And so when the, the Babylonians come, they're like, we, we don't want him, so they leave him. He's not taken into exile. But he's still the prophet of God. And so God gives him a word. He says, I want you to write a letter to the people in exile. All right, we're, we're almost done, pretty close to being done with the history lesson. So if you've got your grocery list and everything else done, come on back with us. All right. So he writes this letter to these people who've been taken off into Babylon. We find this in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. He writes, this is what the Lord Almighty the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And they're probably saying, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, where's this Lord Almighty when we're getting our temple destroyed and our homes burned down? And, and where's this God of Israel when we're taken off into Babylon? And I think what Jeremiah would say is, listen, the Lord is the Lord Almighty regardless of your circumstances. He doesn't change. He is the Lord Almighty. And this is one of those rare times when a prophet gets to give good news, usually they're the bearer of bad news, but he gets to give them good news. And it's a familiar passage. Many of you are very familiar. Some of you would say this is your life first. Some of you have this on your, on your, your, your Pinterest uh, plaque or whatever. I don't know. He writes this. 
These are the words of the Lord Almighty. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. What? Yes! Cue Bob Marley. Every little thing is going to be all right. Did you hear what the Lord says? That's why we love these verses. He's going to give us a hope. He's going to give us a future. We're going to prosper. We're going to be back in the right relationship. Yes, and. What some of you who have this as your life verse, you've got it embroidered on whatever. You never read verse 10, though, did you? Or you skipped right over it. Because all of that is true. But just before that, he says in verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Ew. Yes, there is a hope and a future. Yes, I will restore you. Yes, we will have a right covenant. Yes, I will bless you. You're going to be here for 70 years. I think one of the things that will help us in this is to understand this, that sometimes it's this learning, as it says in, in the American Psychological uh, Association, it's the successfully adapting to the difficulties and challenges of our life experiences. And in that, being able to have not just a three-minute and 15-second quick cure in the, in the cryo chamber, but to know that it may take some time but to be resilient nonetheless. And the key to resilience in this Babylonian moments like this in our lives is keeping a, what I'm going to refer to as a, a paradox perspective. And let me explain that. This comes out of, if, if you're familiar with Jim Collins' incredible book, Good to Great, that came out, I don't know, 20-some years ago, I suppose. Good to Great. In that book, he talks about the Stockdale paradox. And this is how it goes. Admiral James Stockdale was the highest-ranking U.S. Uh, military official to ever spend any time in the Hanoi uh, Hotel. In fact, he was there in that prisoner of war camp for 2,714 days. And in those almost eight years that he spent in this prisoner of war camp, he was tortured more than 20 times and put in isolating uh, confinement multiple times, which we may talk about that in a few weeks, three weeks. And in this, and then he was finally uh, released. Well, one day on the campus of Stanford University, Jim Collins was there, as was Admiral Stockdale, and they went for a walk together. And Collins asked Admiral Stockdale, how did you do it? How did you make it almost eight years in the torture and the isolation? How did you do it? And his response was, I never lost faith in the end of the story. Collins said they walked in silence for about 300 feet. And then he asked him, who didn't make it? Stockdale says, well, that's easy. It was the optimist. He said, the optimist? He said, yeah. They were the ones that would say, we're going to be out of here. We're going to be released by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go, and they were still there. Okay, we're going to be released by Easter. And Easter would come and go, and they were still in there. And after this happened two or three times, they began to lose heart. And they gave up hope. 
and they didn't make it. And then Collins writes what Stockdale said. He said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. You will prevail. You will make it through. But don't ignore what's going on right now. And this is exactly what Jeremiah said 2,600 years before Stockdale ever said it. Jeremiah said, listen, it's almost like double vision. Don't ever lose sight of the end game. You will prevail. You will come out on the other end. But don't forget about what you're going through. You can thrive right here and right now. You confront these brutal facts. But don't ever lose that hope. And he says to them, while you're there, you can and you will live a resilient life. So in this letter, Jeremiah writes to them, in, in, uh, earlier in chapter 29, verse 5, he says, here's what I want you to do. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the numbers there and do not decrease. What he's saying is don't stop living. In the difficulties, don't just lay down. Don't just give up. Continue to live a resilient life. And then he makes it even more difficult, a statement found in verse 7. And this one deserves, honestly, its own sermon, so I won't go into it. Verse 7, he says, Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wait, 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 God, wait, wait. You're asking us, to pray for the ones who burned down your temple? You're asking that we would pray for the success and the prosperity of the ones who destroyed our homes, our country, that took our lives? You're asking us to pray for them? Little message for us, church. In our world, when we're all up in arms against all these things that are ungodly and going farther and farther away from Christian values, we are called to pray for our president, our governor, our mayor, the council. We are called to pray. Some of you don't want to pray. You don't want to bring lightning. We're called to pray. All right, that, that's, that's another sermon. Don't have time for that. Okay. I didn't hear a whole lot of amen, so I know I missed it. I, I got a spot. So here's what happens. They're in, they're in captivity. They're in exile. And he says, I want you to live. Don't get into this win-then mentality. You know, when we get back home, then we're really going to live. When we get out of captivity, then we're going to live. When they finally apologize, then we're going to live. When we get this, you know, justice is meted, then we're going to live. No, 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 not this win-then. What he's saying is you're flourishing while, not just when. While you're in Babylon. Continue to live, continue to flourish, continue to overcome, continue to rise above this. And some of you are saying, well, you know, Bob, this is, this is all good, and I know a lot of positive psychology, which, by the way, I love. But it's deeper than that. We've got something even more. Let me quickly take us back two weeks ago on Easter weekend when we visited Romans chapter 8, where it says these words, if God is for us, then who could ever be against us? And if he did not spare his own son, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? And then it goes further in verse 35, where it says, Now who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then what happens after that is he begins to describe different scenarios that we would refer to as Babylon, figurative, metaphorical Babylons. Who is ever going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? 
It's a rhetorical question. Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword. These things that are Babylon in our lives, things that we would not want, we don't love, we wouldn't choose, we want it to be over with. No, it says, as it is written, for your sakes, we face death all day long and are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Are these things going to ever separate us from the love of Christ? And then he answers it. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Some of you need to just hold on to that verse. When your circumstances begin to tell you, God doesn't care about you. He's forgotten about you. He doesn't love you. If he did, you, this is all because you say, no. <laughs> in all these things, including this stuff, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror through him who loves me. It's not me just picking myself up by the bootstraps. It's the foundation that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of God at all. He would go on and, and he would say, listen, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, whatever that may hold, no powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No matter what your circumstances, in the worst circumstances, you are more than a conqueror. It doesn't mean that everything is easy, but it means that nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And 1 John chapter 5 says this, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In the 14th century, I'll close with this, and I do mean that. In the 14th century, uh, there was a woman named Julian of Norwich. Uh, she was referred to as an, an anchoress, which would be kind of like a female monk, kind of. But in her lifetime, she experienced, their world experienced the Black Plague, uh, atrocities we can't even imagine. In her lifetime, there was a, a, a big peasant revolt that, that was very tumultuous. There was also some oppression. And then when she was 30 years old, uh, she got deathly ill. She was convinced she was going to die. She understood Babylon. And she wrote these great words. He said not, thou shalt not be tempested. Thou shalt not be travailed. Thou shalt not be diseased. But he said, Thou shalt not be overcome. It's the reality. But we will prevail. And maybe there's a reason that the cross of Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. Because the greatest human who ever lived the greatest human life ever experienced the ultimate, deepest, darkest Babylon of all on the cross and in the grave. And then there was the resurrection. Oh, it was hard. But there was hope. It was difficult, really, really difficult. But there was the resurrection and the resilience. And we are called to live that way. We are more than conquerors. We overcome. We are the resilient ones, not because we're so much better, but because nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, and that foundation will see us through.